Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus through these messages from our weekend worship gatherings. We are so glad you're joining us for our summer series at Vintage Church as we examine the life of Jesus through the eyes and experience of his most beloved disciple, John. We hope that you are curious and committed as we take a closer look at Jesus and reflect on what it means to live and love like him. My name is Matt. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Vintage, and y'all look great. You're welcome. Go ahead and grab your Bible. Grab your Bible. Go to John chapter 10, because we're going to get there in just a minute. John chapter 10. And if it's cool with everybody, we're going to talk about Jesus today. Yeah. that all right? Okay, if we talk about Jesus in church, probably should, shouldn't we? Because the reality is, that's why we're here, amen? I know these guys are awesome. But, but they're just here to usher you into the presence of Jesus. You didn't come for them. You came because God used their gifts to take you into the throne room of heaven where you can hear from Jesus. Come on, somebody. And I pray that you hear that today as you're in this space because, man, you know, I keep being reminded of Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't our best option. He's our only option. And the gospel is the only thing that can do in the world what needs to be done. And if you don't think a lot needs to be done in the world, you're not, <laughs> you're not paying attention. There's a lot that needs to be done in our world. And it's about time we stop fighting over stupid stuff and started pointing people to Jesus. How about that? Come on, somebody. That's, that's just a better option. Um, instead of arguing about masks, let's just point people to, anyway. Went from preaching to meddling. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, and the reality is this church exists to inspire people to live in love like Jesus. Because the goal is, the day you met Jesus, that was the beginning. And, and what he wants to do through the power of his spirit in you is continue to mold you. And Jesus wasn't just our Messiah, he was our model. He was, in Jesus, God looked at humanity and said, that's how you do it. He didn't come just to die. If he came just to die, he could have done it before 33 years old. He came to model for us what it meant to live for him. And the good news is we don't have to guess about what it means to live in love like Jesus because he, we, ha we have the gospels. We have the scripture. We have these actual accounts of Jesus' life. We have four different people who wrote an account of Jesus' life and they're all unique and they're all special and they're all different, but they're all true. We have the book of Matthew that was written by a guy named Matthew who was one of the original 12 who was serving as a tax collector when Jesus met him and he just said, hey, I want you to follow me. And he did, and he experienced this life with Jesus and he writes down his account of what happens and, and he says a lot and everything that's in that gospel is to help us better understand who Jesus is and was and wants us to be. You have one written by a guy named Luke who was not one of the original 12 but he was a, a Greek physician, a man of intellect and science, and, and his account was based out of his own investigation. He even says, like, I, I've searched all this stuff out, that he was, is like a lot of us. He just doesn't take things at face value as a man of science. He knew he needed to investigate these things, and so that's what he set out to do. 
And he writes his account based on his investigation, talking to people who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who were alive when Jesus was alive. And he, and he writes down th- his account of this life that changed all of history. And you have the Gospel of Mark. Mark also wasn't one of the 12, but he was discipled by one of the 12, a guy named Peter. He was in Jesus's inner circle and he invested in Mark and Mark writes down Peter's reflection of his experience with Jesus and he gives us an account of Jesus' life, but then you have John. And I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite, but John's mine. Of all the books of the Bible, I've said this throughout this series that, that I've read multiple times as, 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 as you have, because y'all good godly people. John is my favorite, and, and, and anytime somebody accepts Jesus, they always ask me, Matt, where do I go? And, and I say the gospel of John, because John's account of Jesus' life, it's very unique. It's, it's different than the others. And maybe it's because he had, he had a unique relationship with Jesus. He was one of those people that were most intimately connected with Jesus. Or maybe it's because John writes his very, almost at the very end of his life. At this point, he is an old man and and these other accounts would have already been circulating, already been used in the life of the church to bring people to Jesus. And you know that for hundreds of years, people didn't come to Jesus from, from reading the Bible as we know it because it didn't exist. It came from these journals, from these men who had encountered Jesus or encountered people who had encountered Jesus. And these, they, they, would, they would make manuscripts and they would pass them around to these villages and people would read them and they would investigate the life of Jesus and they would learn about this man who was more than a man and change people's life. And when John writes his down, again, all these others have been written and he says, you know what? He's very clear. I'm writing this so that you believe like I believe. Everything that I'm gonna put in this book, in this journal, in this reflection, is so that you will come to believe about Jesus what I believe about Jesus, that he wasn't just some random carpenter's son from Nazareth. He was the one and only son of God that came to bring us salvation. And so everything that he writes is to point us to that end. And I don't know how he chose the stories he chose. He even tells us in his gospel that if you wrote down all the things that Jesus did wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill it. That in this experience that John had with Jesus, there was so many mind-blowing moments. And do you ever wonder, like, I wonder what those were like. I can't get wait to get to heaven and say, Jesus, tell me the rest of the story. Like, I wanna know more. And I don't know if John just, I, I don't believe that John just randomly picks these stories. I think obviously he is inspired by God, but I also I've come to believe that I think these are the stories that made him believe. And so he writes them down, hoping that they would have the same impact on you and me. So as he's writing it down, he, he, th- this is the moment, like the, there was this time when Jesus was at a wedding and he was there with his mom and they, they ran out of wine And his mom came to him and said, Jesus, they're out of wine. We need you to do something. And Jesus is like, mama, it's not my time. And I wonder if she gave him the mama look. Don't act like you don't know that look. Y'all seen it. It puts the fear of God in everybody, even Jesus apparently, because it puts the fear of himself in Jesus. Y'all get some, Tony got it, he laughed. (laughs) You put the fear of me in me. And he turns, he takes, and he takes water and turns it into wine. He takes the most ordinary substance 
and turns it into something extraordinary. And in the hands of Jesus, that's what he always does. Come on, somebody. He takes the most ordinary things, the most ordinary people, and gets a hold of them and changes them into something extraordinary. Come on, testify somebody in the room. That's what he does. And he remembers stuff like these conversations that he had with a guy named Nicodemus, who was wealthy and well-known, a Pharisee. And John records this conversation that I'm, that I'm guessing he witnessed when it happened. That there was this conversation that Jesus had with this very prominent religious figure named Jesus. And he says something, nicknamed Nicodemus, and he says something very weird to him that, that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus is like, back in the month, wait, wait, what? And he has to explain this whole new birth, this spiritual birth that's necessary, that to get the kingdom of heaven, Nicodemus, it ain't about keeping all your religious rules. It's about a spiritual birth that only comes through belief in me. So that just reminds you, you don't get to heaven because you go to church. You don't get to heaven because you serve. You don't get to heaven because you pay your tithe, but thank you. You don't, you get to heaven Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people do. And in and, and, and back-to-back chapters, back-to-back stories pretty much, he tells the story of, of a man named Nicodemus and a, then a woman that Jesus encounters that couldn't be more opposite of Nicodemus. We don't know her name. She's not religious that we can tell in the way that Jesus was. She's different from Jesus in every way and everything that said Jesus shouldn't even engage her. And Jesus engages this woman while at this well waiting for a drink of water who had been through relational roller coaster. We'll just put it like that because that's the nicest word I can think of in the moment. Five different husbands, broken and rejected. And Jesus engages her and she comes to belief in him. And God uses her testimony to bring her whole village to Jesus. It's just a reminder that God has always taken broken people, made them whole, and used them to do powerful things. Yeah, you can clap. That's all right. Because God gives, God uses broken people to do amazing things. Amen. And then he tells other cool stories like people being healed by pools, people who can't walk. The time that Jesus is out in the countryside with thousands of people and he can hear their stomachs rumbling and says, it's time to eat. And their disciples are like, man, we fishermen, we're not caterers. I don't know how we're gonna do this. And Jesus takes a little boy's lunch and multiplies it to feed thousands and thousands of people that in Jesus' hands, even small things become significant things and he can use it to do an awesome miracle. And last week we moved into John chapter nine. Where once again, John remembers this encounter that Jesus had with a man born blind. A man born blind, blind from birth, had known darkness his entire life, had never known what it was like to see a sunset or look upon the crystal blue waters of the sea. He had been blind his whole life. And because he had that affliction, his entire society believed that he had done something wrong and God has punished him or his parents or somebody for this mistake. And Jesus walks up to him spits on the ground, takes some mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash in a pool, and all of a sudden, guess what? A man who never could see now can. He opens his eyes. And this, like all the other things that Jesus has done, has caused people to start paying attention. Because you do these kind of things, you feed thousands of people from nowhere, you turn water into wine, 
you do all these miraculous things, people take notice. And crowds began to just follow Jesus everywhere he went, treating him more like a sideshow magician than really the Messiah. They're just more, it's less out of allegiance and more just out of curiosity. And then when the man healed who's been born blind, they can't figure this out. Jesus is doing things that don't make sense. And see, the religious people, the Pharisees, they've been paying very close attention from the onset because their job was to stop these kind of things from happening. See, Jesus wasn't the first. There have been other people that come throughout history claiming to be the Messiah and who had even done really, really cool, miraculous things, but they knew there seemed to be something about Jesus. And so they were paying a little bit closer attention And when they hear this man was born blind, the Pharisees say, bring him in. And they question him and they question his mama and his daddy and all these kind of things. And they're just confused because it doesn't make sense to them that someone as evil as Jesus could be doing such miraculous things. And see, the, the religious people had already made up their mind. Jesus even says, you've already decided. You've already decided that you're not gonna believe in me, that no matter what I do, no matter how many signs I show to point to the reality that there is something different about me. You've just already made up your mind. I think that's not unlike a lot of people in our culture. No matter what Jesus could do or would do, kind of have already decided he's not for them and they're missing out on the only life that could ever be possible for them. But this healing of the blind man stirs something up. And the people who are part of the religious system They are so frustrated by what's just happening because they can't explain it. See, what we don't understand, we criticize. And they just can't figure it out. And this blind man, he he doesn't have all the answers, but he will not speak against Jesus because he knows there's no way that Jesus could do for me what he just did and be what you claim him to be. So I'm, I'm I'm not gonna speak ill against Jesus. And you know what his reward for that is? You're out because they'd already decided if, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you don't speak out against Jesus, they kick you out of the synagogue. And that's what they do. And where we ended last week was, was Jesus found the man who had been rejected by the religious system. And he walks up to him and he says, look at me. You've heard my voice. You felt my touch. Now see my face. The Messiah is standing right in front of you. And it says the man has nothing other respo- no other response but to worship him. But the Pharisees are still lingering around this miracle. See, it's so funny. They're frustrated by him. They can't explain him, but they can't walk away from him. That's why a lot of people keep showing up at church. You're too stubborn to believe in him, but you know you can't walk away, so you keep on coming. There's still something weird. I don't know what's going on. I don't wanna believe in Jesus. I don't know why that girl on the stage screams like she's crazy, but there's, there's just a lot of things happening. I don't know why that preacher says the things he does, and he doesn't wear a suit and tie, and it's weird. But I'm curious. And see, Jesus always, Jesus always knows his audience. He's always very well aware of it. And as John chapter nine comes to a close, he knows that these men and women, these people that are a part of the religious system are still lingering about. And look what he says. Go to John chapter nine, pick up with verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who will see 
will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. They said, what are we blind to? He said, no, the problem isn't that you're blind. The problem is that you can, you can see very well. And you're guilty because you know what you've seen, but yet you're still choosing not to believe. Like Jesus is calling them out. No, you're not blind. You've seen it all. You've heard this. Almost like Jesus saying, no, you know exactly who I am, but in your stubbornness, in your frustration, in whatever, for whatever reason, that man is was born blind from birth. You were born blind by birth because you let the religious system blind you from who I really am. It's not that you haven't seen, you've seen, but you don't choose to believe. And therein lies the problem. So you'd be, you wouldn't be guilty if you hadn't heard the gospel, if you hadn't been exposed to it, if you haven't heard the good news of Jesus, but you have, and you're continuing to reject it. And then now moving to John chapter 10, pick up verse one. And remember, Jesus, Jesus, understanding the audience to which Jesus is talking is key to understanding what he's talking about. Did y'all hear me? John chapter 10, verse one. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep will follow him because they know his voice but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, Jesus is really starting to, to push at them right now. And I don't even think we all realize how much he's pushing. He's using language that they would have been very, very familiar with. This whole concept of sheep and shepherd and sheep and flock. Go read through the Old Testament of how this imagery of shepherd and flock is woven throughout the Old Testament. Not just in that Psalm 23 that you got cross-stitched by your grandma on your pillow in your living room. All through the Old Testament. But the Bible says, and John records, these Pharisees, they, they don't understand. And again, sometimes you wonder, if, is it, do they not understand or are they just refusing not to listen? Therefore, verse seven, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And then verse 10, one that you too might be really familiar with. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is trying to, trying to teach them something in this moment, trying to explain a paradigm, the existence of this unique relationship of sheep and shepherd. And he continues, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
And Jesus goes on to continue to dive into the dynamics of this relationship. And he would say, yeah, the, the, the kind of shepherd that I am is one that's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Not that somebody's gonna take it from me. No, willingly, out of obedience to the calling of the heavenly father, I will lay it down. And he continues to unpack this, this metaphor of, of sheep and shepherd and even says, I even have sheep that are not of this particular pen. They're of a pen that, that maybe you would not prefer, but they are also my sheep. That these, they're sheep that are outside of, of your religious system, outside of even your nationality. They're sheep that don't look like you. The black sheep that you would prefer to ignore, they're my sheep too. And I'm gonna call them all by name and I'm gonna call them all out. And look at how they respond the same way they always respond. Verse 19 says, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. And it seemed like every time Jesus did something, especially those who were part of the religious system, they were in one of kind of two camps. There were some people that said, this guy's crazy. He's crazy. He says these weird things. He's just a maniac. And there's some that say, there's no way that he could do these things and say these things and not be from God. That he's either Messiah or he's maniac. And the reality is he's either one or the other. There's no room for, there's no room in the middle. Jesus will, will only, he will be Lord or he will be nothing. Jesus don't do part-time. Jesus does not do part-time. That means Jesus can't be Lord today and not tomorrow. Jesus can't have your allegiance when you're in this building, can't have you worshiping him with your hands in the air while our team leads, and then have you mistreating your coworker when you get to work tomorrow. He's one or the other. And it says they were divided. And now as I read that chapter again in this time through John, of course, there's just natural things that come up to me in that. The beauty of the dynamics between sheep and shepherd. The relationship that Jesus is unpacking, it's powerful. That Jesus is saying, I'm, this, I'm the good shepherd. That who I am to my sheep is such a beautiful thing. And I too, I, I retreat to that Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And it does help us understand the beauty of, of what Jesus came to do and who he is and all the things he says in that space that, you know, my, my sheep know my voice. And I know we live in a world where there's a lot of voices in there. There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of voices in this culture that we're in trying to tell you what to believe and how to think and all these kind of things. And Jesus says, when, we're, when I'm living in the right relationship as sheep and shepherd, my sheep can hear and know and understand my voice among all the others and realize the one true voice and run from all the others. That I will care for my sheep. I will protect my sheep. They will go in and they will come out and they will have pasture. They will, in my Sheep, in my relationship as good shepherd, whether they're in or whether they're out, whether they're at work or whether they're at church, my presence and my provision is so powerful and constant no matter where they go or where they are, I'm always watching over them and providing and guiding in every place. That no, there is not a single 
pen I'm confined to. There's not a single temple that I will remain, that I am going to be their shepherd. They will be my sheep. And what they experience in relationship with me will be unlike anything they've ever known before. That the shepherd is dedicated and the sheep are dependent. And there's beauty in that relationship. But the reality is, when you really understand the heart behind why Jesus is saying this, there's something new that awakens in your spirit. Remember, Jesus is engaging the Pharisees, a group of religious people that he has just watched, watched once again kick a wounded sheep out of the pen. Remember, this is on the hills. The, the man that he had healed, the blind man, had gone to the religious people and testified to what happened. He didn't tell, tell them they were bad. He didn't abuse their system. All he said, remember, I was blind, now I see. And you know what they did? They kicked him out. Once again, they rejected him. And it's in that context that Jesus very intentionally uses this language. Because once again, he's watched the people that were supposed to be the under shepherds of the good shepherd fail to represent him well. See this, the Pharisees, the religious people of that day were supposed to function as an extension of God to the people. That would have been their role, the role of the priest throughout the Old Testament. Say amen if you're tracking with me. They were supposed to be helping people find God instead of keeping people from God. But they were guilty of it all throughout the history of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus is stepping once again into an audience with the religious people, the language he's using as good shepherd is very intentional because he's trying to let them know and everybody know that he will be what they never were. He will fill a role that they never could. Grab a Bible. This isn't gonna be on the screen, so you're actually gonna have to access God's word with me today if you want to. Ezekiel chapter 34. Pull it up on your phones, open up your Bible, because this is, this is awesome. This shows you just the continuity of scripture and the power of God's word. And I just wanna remind you that, that what I'm about to read was prophesied, was written years, hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus would ever look at these Pharisees and talk about being the good shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 34. See, it's, it's Ezekiel 34 that I think Jesus is pointing to in this conversation, not necessarily Psalm 23. Y'all ready to hear this? Say amen. It's good. Are you sure you're ready? Okay. Ezekiel 34, start with verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays who searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. 
And when they were scattered, they became food for the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. That you who are supposed to be the ones that kept people understanding who I was and connected to me, you failed. You've let it become more about you and your wants and your needs. And as a result, the sheep have been scattered because the sheep need a shepherd. The ones that were supposed to stand in the gap and fill the role of shepherd until the good shepherd came have failed miserably. Verse 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. Then there they will lay down and get good grazing land. And there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I will do what you have failed to do. Because what the people need, they didn't get. I will be what you were supposed to be, but better. And then verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? See, when Jesus is standing there before these people, he's once again watched those who were supposed to be under shepherds of the good shepherd fail to be a shepherd. He says, you once again, here is this man broken and hurting and he's been healed and he comes to you with this excitement of this restoration and what do you give him in return? You tell him to go away because you're just as stubborn as you've always been and once again, you failed to represent my father. But that's okay, because you know what? I'm here. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that even when danger comes, I won't run like the hired hand. The hired hand is too indifferent to even fight. I love you enough to die. I'll be the one, and you know what? You thought you've been the gatekeepers and you've kept people out. Guess what? I'm the gate. From now on, I decide who comes in, who gets to be a part, and who doesn't. And they will no longer be victim to your prejudice. Men like this blind man, women like who were at the well, and yes, even Nicodemus, I get to decide now who comes in and who goes out. I'm in charge now. I am the good shepherd. And I think about all the people who would have been more ready to receive that shepherd had the Pharisees done their job. See, they were, they were poised to be the ones that helped people recognize Jesus when he came. They should have been helped open the pathway to Jesus instead of being a stumbling block to him. 
And I wonder if the church is still guilty of that. That I too, we are an under shepherd of the good shepherd. And are there times when we represent him so poorly that when he shows up, they resist him? Don't resist who Jesus wants to be in your life because of other people's failures. Don't resist who he wants to be because of who we failed to be at times. Because the reality is your sheep, just like me, prone to wonder, fully dependent on the shepherd. And now throughout your life, like Jesus said, you're gonna have one that doesn't wanna come through the gate, tries to climb over the fence and try to be the shepherd to you. And in your desire to be shepherded, you're gonna wanna lean in to that wrong thing. But Jesus reminds you, that's just a thief and a robber. He won't give you joy, he'll only take it away. And Jesus says that his passion is so powerful for the sheep that when one wonders, he'll leave the 99 to chase the one that has been lost. There is a good shepherd who's chasing after your soul so that you can live in relationship with him. And he is calling out to you, saying, gates open, gates open. So Lord, I pray right now for all of us who maybe have in our stubbornness refused to see you for who you really are, failed to recognize the good shepherd that you are, that the shepherd is not here to saddle us with a stronger burden, but to make that burden light. God, you care for us when we're wounded and you welcome us back after we've wondered. You provide and you guide and you call us by name. And God, I believe today you're calling the names of a lot of people in this room or watching with us online, saying the gate's open and you've been waiting. God, help us to move and respond to that voice and allow you to be in our lives what you desire to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope that what you experience today inspires you to live and love like Jesus. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage and grow deeper in your faith by downloading the Vintage Church app. Through this app, you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, additional podcasts, and opportunities to connect in community. You can easily download our app by going to app.vintagechurch.net. We hope you join us again soon.